0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to the episode of MTG Fast Finance, the podcast that hears Magic Finance is dead and just keeps making bones from beyond the grave. MTG Fast Finance is your weekly podcast covering the world of Magic the Gathering, finance, collection management, and speculation. A quick message from our sponsor, Face2FaceGames. Face2FaceGames.com provides competitive pricing on Magic singles and sealed product with shipping to both the US and Canada. Check out face-to-face card pricing via MTGPrice.com, whether building your deck or stockpiling a spec. I'm your host, James Chilcott, aka at MTG Critic on the interwebs. My co-host is Travis Allen, aka at Wizard Bumpin', and we're here to help you guys make and save money playing our favorite game, Magic the Gathering.
1: Good afternoon, everyone. Glad to be here on a Saturday morning. Looking forward to sharing some... Wait, I said good afternoon and then uh, a Saturday morning. (laughs) I don't know. Whatever. Well, looking forward to sharing some valuable information with everybody. Our show is sponsored by MTGPrice.com, the leading MTG finance community. Sign up today at MTGPrice.com to manage your collection, track your specs, and read articles by some of the best financial minds in the hobby.
0: Sweet. So, Travis, what's on the agenda this week?
1: Uh, Well, this week we've got a show in four pieces. Our first segment is top movers, where we will look at the cards that have seen price increases over the last week. Pretty, pretty robust list this week. Segment two is our cards to watch. These are our cards James and I have our eyes on as potential uh, gainers in price over the future. Segment three is our metagame we can review. We got a couple things on the docket. There's a the mox championship uh, that had that was won by Uter Leighton that was like 16 players. You still got this, the MTGO standard championship that ran concurrently and Grand Prix B- Brisbane as well. And finally, segment four, our topic of the week, we will talk briefly about Channel Fireball getting exclusive uh, TO ship, I guess, of the Grand Prix circuit for 2018. So let's jump in at the top, segment one, top movers. Um, The first things we're going to talk about this week are Mox, Opal, and Karin Liberated, both in uh, the Scars of Mirrodin block um, and also MM2, Modern Masters 2015, Neither of these had particularly massive percentage increases, right around 30% or so. Um, But the dollar value increase on that is actually pretty significant, um, especially when you consider that these are modern staples. So Mox Opal uh, started out around 40, a little before the Modern Masters 3 spoilers, and is now currently around 70 60 to 70, and Karn is up from like 50 to 80 or so. Um, So pretty large dollar value increases on each of those cards after it was revealed that they were not in Modern Masters 3. I don't think that we've really seen too many copies selling at these newer prices, but they are definitely cards that uh, people were keeping an eye on because they knew that there's a high demand for them. I mean, Max Opal is obviously um, a huge part of the format, both in Affinity and Lantern. Uh, so I, I don't think that we'll see the prices drop too far on these, especially over the course of a couple months when people need copies, and that's what the price is.
0: Yeah, I mean, uh, of the two, I certainly like Mox Opal more than I like Karn Liberated. I mean, Karn is a powerful, iconic planeswalker, um, often played in uh, Tron decks and in Modern, um, and certainly has some casual demand as well. Um, But the thing with Karn is that he's never played as a 4-of, sometimes a 2-of, occasionally a 3-of. Um whereas Moxobel when it's played is played as a four of and it's played as a four of in both uh Lantern Control and Affinity and other random decks that are built around artifacts that continue to pop up in the format. Um it's also the card of the two that has the greatest chance of being uh banned at some point for being fast mana and, and uh but it's it has uh surprisingly survived numerous bannings um thus far. Um so it's no higher uh of a ban chance now than it ever was. Um, affinity is 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 consistently a good deck but not by any means dominant in the format and uh you know i, I have a feeling that despite the increased uh incidence of ban list announcements uh, in 2017 um mox Opal may still be a solid pick to to pick up some gains for people that were holding uh before the announcements
1: yeah uh current and i just want to point out Karn rated is played as a four of in tron pretty much exclusively but that is the only place you'll ever see four copies
0: I mean, I've seen I've seen some versions running uh, three to four copies, but a, a lot of them spread it out amongst Karn, Ugin, uh, and in the green black version that we're going to talk about later, um, uh, they were running things like Worldbreaker. So uh, it really depends on the, the flavor, I guess, of the of the deck in question.
1: I, yeah, I think that slot is is marginally more flexible today than it was, say, six months or a year ago, when four yeah. Karn was just an auto four that you never even thought about. Exactly. Um, what's next, James?
0: Uh, so getting into the uh, deeper part of the list, we've got Fulminator Mage from MM2 and Shadow uh, Shadowmore moving from 20 to 40. That's a, essentially a double up because it dodged the MM2 reprint and is frequently useful in battling decks like Tron when you're trying to keep them off Tron um, by making sure that they don't have one of the three lands they need to immediately boost to seven mana.
1: Right. Fulminator Mage is a really powerful card. Um, I'm all... You know, I'm always surprised that I don't see it as much as I expect to. I remember Living End, um, you'd go into playing Living End games and you'd go to sideboard and be like, all right, I'm going to beat these guys. I have so much graveyard hate. And then they just go, fulminator Mage, fulminator Mage, Fallminator. And you'd be like, oh. And then they'd re- bring it back with Living End. And then they'd fulminator Mage you four more times. And you're like, yep, that's it. I'm going to be- get beat down by an Architects of Will on turn 12. Um.
0: <laughs> yeah, it was it was also one of the cards that uh, saffron over at Goldfish was using on against the odds this week in coordination with seance to absolutely lock his opponents out of the game. right. Uh, it's pretty gross.
1: Yeah, it's a really cool card, especially when you can set up those sort of um, those sort of effects with it. Uh, it's just slow uh, but if you're if you're in a position to take advantage of that, it's, uh, it's the best way to make sure you're having fun and they're not. Um, next on our list is Tarfire. We are looking at the Lorwyn copy specifically. It was reprinted in uh, the dual, our Elves vs. Goblins dual deck and then uh, then reprinted in that deck again when the Anthology came out. And I think, yeah, those are the only places that it's showed up. So the supply on this is real low. Elves vs. Goblins was the first dual deck, and that was quite a long time ago at this point. Um, Tarfire is a shock that has tribal, so it counts extra for Tarmogoyf, um, and as well as uh, the effect, Delirium right it also counts for delirium because it adds another card type so it is uh it is becoming more relevant and modern um we're seeing the death shadow decks play a couple copies there's a few other builds that play it occasionally but supply is dried up pretty strongly uh i mean i'm showing um you know it was about a dollar before this week and i'm finding them at three bucks plus on tcg and, and assorted sites so a uh, pretty good movement this week on, on Fire. i don't think you know i don't think this is going to be a ten dollar card but i mean You know, we've seen plenty of commons hit four, five, six, ten dollars even. So that could be in its future.
0: Yeah, I mean, there are very few copies left on TCG Player, and once those those drain out, who knows what the price of this card is? Um, Because it's a tribal instant, extremely hard to reprint. Just any old place, Um, and probably the kind of card that's you know destined to show up in Modern Masters twenty nineteen.
1: Right. Yeah. I guess. I mean. I guess it's fair. You know. It's it was lore, basically
0: just Lorwyn, and that was a long time ago now. So maybe this is a ten dollar card. Uh, it it definitely hinges on the play pattern of needing um, a tribal slash goblin uh, shock that you want in your graveyard for the purposes of Delirium and or Death Shadow as uh, decks as you as you mentioned. Um, if that meta shifts, then the attention, the spotlight falls off this card pretty quickly. Um, Not the kind of card that's just going to start showing up in a bunch of random decks as ubiquitous for of like Snapcaster. Um, But inventory really, really low, so. Right, right. Okay, what do we got next? City of Shadows, uh, a land that is so bad you don't need to really worry about what it does from the dark. Moved from 550 to 13, which is basically just the remaining inventory drying up Uh, as the people that are targeting reserve list cards continue to target them, whether this is collectors or a, uh, series of speculators or a single speculator continues to mystify me. Um, but, uh, regardless, reserve list cards are draining through the bottom of the barrel and down into the ground. Um, so expect a few more of these this year as we move through the rest of that list. I wonder if whoever's doing that is actually making a profit. Could be. I mean, as a long term play, it seems solid, right? That These are the cards that are guaranteed not to be reprinted, at least so far. And uh, if nothing else, collectors trying to finish sets will need them. And those people do exist. They just don't pop up on our radar very often because they are living in a whole different world full of way too many binders in their basement
1: yeah i suppose that's true uh you know especially i guess if you consider the fact that this is likely not likely to be a a quick flip strategy this is certainly here for whoever's doing this is in it for the long run type of thing
0: yeah i don't think you key up the price of city of shadows expecting to sell a playset next week
1: (laughs) that'd be be a curious strategy if you were um next up is uh fabricate from mirrodin specifically we're looking at foils started the week at around eight dollars up to 19 20 bucks or so um didn't show up in modern masters 2 likes artifacts we all know brea is exceedingly popular as an edh commander continuing to deplete the foil fabricate um inventory there's basically not any left at this point um so you know i don't think that that's necessarily a real price but i don't know what the real price is it'll just depend on what people decide to pay for it but there are not many copies of mirrored and foils around these days so
0: yeah, I mean, Fabricate is a, a tutor for artifacts, quite simply. Two in a blue sorcery, search your library for an artifact and put it in your hand. Um, doesn't get much simpler than that. And it shows up in like 8,000 different decks, uh, on EDH Rec, um, with Brea, Sherum, uh, Sidri and Brago, uh, all being in the hundreds and hundreds of decks uh, listed as running Fabricate. So the demand is there, um, the foil inventory relatively shallow, and not a huge surprise given the prominence of Artifact decks in EDH to see this making a move.
1: Nope. Uh, what's next?
0: Uh, so we've also got another reserve list card. Uh, this one, uh, extremely powerful and dangerous, if you remember uh, back in the day. Yagmas bargain uh, was basically the quote-unquote fixed necropotence um where uh, it costs six to get into play instead of three and then you paid a life and drew a card whenever you wanted to instead of waiting till the end of your turn which turned out to be uh, almost more powerful than necropotence because you could combo off and draw 10 15 20 cards depending on what your life total looked like and then do all sorts of busted broken things that would still be going on today if they hadn't quickly realized this this thing uh, needed to be retired, um, so it's been virtually worthless for ages because it's played almost nowhere, um, but moved from $2.50 to $6, uh, again, because it's on the reserve list and can't be reprinted. Um, people are just mopping up everything that looks even remotely playable. Hmm. Certainly a powerful card.
1: I mean, as far as reserve list cards, it seems like one of the better ones to go with, right? I mean, it, it's actually useful. It does cool stuff.
0: Uh, is it banned in Commander?
1: It is, unfortunately, if it weren't, I suspect it would be one of the most expensive black cards in Magic.
0: Yeah, you would think. the. Yeah, with given that it doesn't have any EDH demand, um, I don't, you can really only play this at the kitchen table, and people that are playing at the kitchen table these days <clears throat> probably aren't playing with many cards from 20 years ago.
1: No, no I w- wouldn't expect as much. Um, all right, next up on our list is Merchant Scroll. This is the Tumana blue sorcery that puts an instant on top tutors for an instant and puts it on top of your library. Um it's the opposite of what you always want it to be, which is an instant that searches for sorceries. But it's still not a bad card. Um shows up occasionally in Modern Storm, uh a few other assorted areas. I know it's played in vintage every now and then, um, because it goes and gets uh well, special recall is a sorcery, isn't it? Or er- it's an instant, so you can get you can get recall, um, which is I'm guessing the only reason they play this card. Uh, but it, in any case, it's a, it's a strong card. It's been printed in Homelands in Eighth Edition as a as an uncommon, and for the longest time it was like a dollar or whatever. But it seems to. Has really jumped lately up to about eight bucks. I can't really find many copies cheaper than that, both for the eighth edition and Homelands copies. Um, so kind of kind of out of the blue on this one. I don't know if people were waiting for MM three or what, but I, I honestly, I have to admit, I haven't been keeping an eye on the stock. I never thought much of it, um, but you know, there you go. It Seems to be the price for now. I, I don't know how sticky it is yet, but there are not many copies of this card on the market. So even if demand is is low, uh, you know, it doesn't take much. There's not a lot of supply to meet that.
0: Yeah, this this bad boy was just free money coming out of the super collection, um, which is, uh, for short-term listeners, the massive collection that I bought and flipped uh, last year, um, where I basically sold the creme de la creme, the top 3% of the collection, and kept all the rest of the, the binders. And this guy had uh, binders of pretty much every set going all the way back to antiquities. Um, and so I just pulled a whole bunch of merchant scrolls out of the 8th and uh, Homelands binders that weren't really... Uh, on the radar when i sold the thing so thanks for that free money merchant squirrel players <laughs> yeah no kidding uh what's uh, what's next i mean this is one of those bulk events where you get jealous of the bulk guys too again because <laughs> anybody with homeland's bulk is like oh finally some money
1: yep i mean i guess yeah I mean, they've always buy listed for like a dollar or something like that. So th- they've definitely moved. But you figure someone probably had a bunch of these they were sitting on because they picked them up and just hadn't gotten around to moving them yet.
0: Must be nice.
1: Yeah, I think be I've nice got, to a job.
0: <laughs> I think I've got to go back. <laughs> I think i got to go back through my own collection because I I think I l- looked through uh, my boxes the other day. But I thought this was an instant, not a sorcery. So I'm pretty sure I looked in the wrong place.
1: Yeah, I uh, I'm kind of trying not to imagine how many of these have been inside of bulk that I've gotten rid of.
0: Oh, well. All right. So next on the list, we have Colossus of Sardia from antiquities. This is the original printing and it is not on the reserve list because it was printed in, uh, 10th Uh, edition. uh, edition. Right. Moving from $350 to apparently $28 um, for a $25 gain. That's a 700% gain that I think you are going to be very uh, hard pressed to actually realize. Um, uh, it's the original blackboarded printing of the card from one of the oldest sets in Magic, but there is almost no demand profile for the card. The card is terrible. Um, it's definitely not played in EDH where it would just be laughable. Um, and so this looks like somebody just mopping up uh, low uh, cost original printings from the first couple of years of the game, and uh, I would just move right along and ignore that until uh, you trip over your near mint copy that you had stashed away for reasons unknown.
1: Right? Yeah, it's it's one of these things. that's just going to be hard to to move,
0: um, you know, to realize that value. So, but it's the same as with all these antiquities cards. I imagine the value of having a list, uh, a mailing list of like the five hundred guys trying to complete full collections of magic
1: <laughs> probably would be
0: uh it would be pretty
1: nice yeah um when we, yeah I, mean, <laughs> I
0: 5 years ago my father's email address would have been one of those um, but he's almost done now so yeah.
1: yeah i remember you mentioned he's been collecting that now you uh bring that up every now and, and then
0: and the funny thing is you could take all the action that i've i've taken in the last couple of years in mtg finance and it would pale in comparison to him getting into finishing sets five to 10 years ago, right? Because he was buying all these things when they were 50 cents or a dollar that are now supposedly 20, 30, $40. He's got, you know, boxes and lotuses and, and everything from, from unlimited revised and beta. So, uh, yeah. (laughs) And any random commons, uncommons, etc. that have popped off, you know, he bought boxes and boxes of that product drafted like crazy. Um, (sighs) I don't even want to think he has so much stuff that it had to get moved to a storage facility. And I don't even want to think about what's what's in there. (laughs) Well, good for him. Um, Okay. I mean, let's money. Money you don't realize doesn't exist, right?
1: (laughs) Yeah, that's true. That's true. Uh, All right. So last on our list this week is three wishes. Um, This is from visions. It's a three mana instant that, like exiles the top 3 cards of your library and until your next turn you can cast them um so we checked EDH track uh, it's not a terrible card in EDH especially if you're playing some sort of green blue list or or something that untaps your lands every turn because it basically just turns into three mana draw three, sort of. But it's not really showing up on EDH Rack, but it is a reserve list card. So uh, we suspect that this is was lowish inventory on reserve list cards. Somebody just bought it up along with everything else. Um, and unlike some of these other reserve list cards, which are nigh unplayable, this one at least has a possible demand profile. So, may, so maybe they're hoping that, you know, it might not be today that people will figure it out. But in the near future, sometime in the future, people will realize that this card is
0: semi-playable in EDH. Um, uh, what, one of the... It's going to be so nice when down the road, all of these reserve list opportunities have petered out to basically non-existence and these lists get so much cleaner.
1: Yeah, yeah. Yep, that will be nice. (laughs) I have to talk about them anymore. Then again, we won't have – we'll have so many fewer things to talk about, right?
0: Uh, But the information will be succinct. It will be fast. Finance. What a concept. There we go. That's real – okay, so that's the problem, you guys. This is why – we
1: are still at uh, hour-long episodes. This is a problem. Once all these reserve list cards are bought out, then then we'll definitely have short episodes. That's, yeah, it's,
0: it's not the hour to three-hour interviews we do semi-regularly. It's definitely the four minutes these cards add.
1: Right, yeah. Yeah, that's what we've decided to tell you all. Um, all right, so segment two, us.
0: cards to watch.
1: Yes. Uh, so, James, once again, you have one more than me, so why don't you get us started?
0: Uh, all right. So I promised you guys that I would get off the EU arbitrage train this week and give you some stuff you can actually uh, get busy with in your home turf. Uh, so starting with Master of Waves, um, a $3 mythic. Um, from Theros block that was not included in uh, Modern Masters 2017 because Theros block is not on deck until Modern Masters 2019, which is the next time you're likely to see this card um, because it is very unlikely to show up anywhere in the interim. Um, there is some hint that Land, the set that's coming out next fall, uh, may have Merfolk in it. So I suppose there, uh, if that set had devotion mechanic, uh, the devotion mechanic was brought back, then master might be an include, but I think that's very unlikely. I think that that block's going to be tribal focused and, and master should be safe. Um, merfolk, uh, is never really given the respect it deserves. It continues to top eight major events over and over and over again over the last few years. It's won a couple, uh, as well and does well, um, uh, you know, in events, both small and large, as the one of the most uh, uh, consistent aggro decks in the format that n- never really gets to the top and sticks there as some kind of dominant force. It's just always a, a deck that's played in relatively low numbers that, you know, could slide in uh, to a top eight. Um, all that being said, the, the inventory is not that deep for master. And to pick these up at three and assume that they'll get to six or seven before uh, it gets a reprinting um, seems like a relatively safe bet.
1: Sure. Uh you know, I think Master of Waves is a very powerful card. Uh it's always gonna be part of Merfolk. You're definitely not getting away from that. Um so if, if this deck can really pull back over the top, uh it certainly sets it up well. And Atlasan looked not only like a tribal deck, but they looked Merfolkish on the wrapper. So I mean this is about as speculative as speculative gets, but at the very least we kind of saw that um maybe
0: that's on the in the future for you. Yeah, and but so I, I mean like if it. if you get one or two excellent Merfolk in Land, then then and merfolk gets you know two percent or three percent better um then maybe that puts some people on the deck yeah it's
1: definitely a like i don't want to call it a fringe deck but it's it's close to being a real modern deck without being right there but it doesn't need too much of an upgrade um to really push into tier two or one
0: yeah fair okay
1: so my pick of the week is it's about two days later than I would like to have told you two days later than I was going to tell you about it. And about six days later than I wish I had told you about it. That is Leyline of Sanctity. This is another card that's started to dry up after it missed reprinting in MM3. Leyline of Sanctity, of course, is the white uh, leyline from M11 and Modern Masters 2 uh, that you get to put in for free that makes you untargetable by opponents. So um, crucially, it prevents discard spells from working um so like thought sees inquisition of close luck and collective brutality you can't be targeted by those so this is essentially uh whenever somebody builds a combo deck you go regardless of what color that deck is you start with four Leyline of sanctity in the sideboard and then you go from there maybe sometimes they pull them out or what have you but if you're trying to combo off in modern or legacy for that matter um you know being able to bring in ley lines against a discard heavy deck can do wonders because it not only does it Potentially blank several cards in your opponent's hand, it prevents them from disrupting your game plan. Uh, So even if you can't cast it for free, that's fine. Uh, Or even if you can't cast it, that's fine. You're really just shooting to have it in play for free at the start of the game. Prices. Prior, you know, prices in the last month or two have been 12, 13, 14. Uh, We are now seeing copies. I think you might be able to find some copies at 15, but you might have to, you'll probably have to do a little digging for that. I would say around 16, you can still find them. Um, I think within a couple months at most, we probably see this in the $25 range, possibly even higher than that. Um, it's not, you know, if you look at like some of these sites that, you know, to show you the metagame saturation, it's not... It's not a top played spell, but it is always, always useful, and there are always decks that want it. Um, and most modern players want to have a, a set on hand, so I, I definitely like this to pick up, you know, a good ten dollars or so. Uh, and it should be pretty easy to move both selling or trading copies um, as well when the time comes. So it shouldn't be hard to realize those profits.
0: Yeah, I mean the it how much it gets played is all over the map, but the fact that all that. Discard action is on the rise between Inquisition of Kozilek, Thoughtseize, and Collective Brutality, providing highly efficient um, discard options for Black mages. Um, you know, Leyline uh, definitely seems to have a, a fix, uh, a place as a fixture in the meta. Um, and you know, having dodged that reprint uh, and being part of a cycle of Leylines, pretty unlikely to see it again until 20, Modern Masters twenty nineteen, um, at which point. I would not at all be surprised um, to see it show up there. Um, the There are copies on, say, MTG price from our various vendors like Card Kingdom, Face to Face, Troll and Toad, uh, um, and uh, a few copies uh, scattered around uh, eBay as well in that kind of $15, 16 $17 range. Um, and I think you know, hitting, predicting that this hits 25 before it sees a reprint uh, is, is not crazy.
1: Okay, um, so why don't you uh,
0: give us your next one? Um, so just I just actually want to point one more thing out with Leyline. One of the things that I think is important for people to realize is that if if a card has been reprinted, in the case of of Leyline, it was originally M11. Uh, I believe so. Yeah. Right. So if it was, you know, the the Leylines were originally printed in in Magic 2011, which would have been a summer core set, um, and has lower volume than say a fall set and then the only reprinting they get in the next 5 years is in a limited uh release like modern masters 2015 was um which even though you know boxes of that set are still relatively plentiful like a year two years later um the reality is that they were never sold at big boxes they were only sold at at magic uh, official stores so the because of that it it's not the same as if you get you know um uh, a rare or a mythic printed in a false set that then gets reprinted again five years later in a fall set um the total inventory on a card like this is much more shallow which is what is allowing it to float up um the the reprinting just wasn't that deep is is the bottom line
1: yeah i mean i, I agree with you it, it's certainly much less than if it had been reprinted in you know Shadows over Innistrad or or whatever well, no, it would have been two years ago if it was in theros instead
0: of uh the modern masters, it would have been much much worse and if it showed up at you know at rare in a false set um right it would drop into the two to three dollar range almost instantly yeah that would that would be a bummer.
1: Let's hope that that doesn't happen in the near future. <laughs>
0: Alright, so next on my list, uh, another masterpiece that I've been keeping my eye on. The other Vile masterpieces have been drifting down and a few, uh, I guess this is kind of Merfolk themed uh, picks this week. uh, Because Merfolk typically runs this as a four of, but it's also used in uh, Death and Taxes decks in both Modern and Legacy, including the Eldrazi Taxes variants that I'm currently playing in Modern Um, and, uh, I have a a sneaking suspicion that the inventory of this card as a broadly played, uh, ubiquitous, uh, four of, um, in two different formats, uh, is eventually going to drain out and it's going to end up back over a hundred dollars. It's been heading south for a while, um, as people try to undercut each other to unload copies. Um, the thing about these masterpieces, right, is that if you open one other vial and you don't Currently, play a deck that needs it, or aspire to play a deck that needs it. Then the value of that card um, is just too tempting, and you're going to unload it. You're not. You're much more likely to to sell one copy than to go buy the next three, right? Um, unless you've got that pressing need. So I think that's that explains a lot of why some of the masterpieces that were expected to to pop quickly have not gone that direction. I just think the mechanics of only ever getting your hands on one at a time um tends to tends to make everybody a seller and and take some time for the buyers to catch up um as they try to find the low point and get motivated to to buy in on the card. But the inventory for many of these um you know key masterpieces is not particularly deep um and there is very little it's only printed in Kaladesh. The fact that the masterpieces um, only show up in Kaladesh or Ether Revolt instead of them being present in both as was the case with you know, some Shocklands and fetch lands at some point, um, the means that these, these cards have very specific uh, periods of opening that are really trailing off. And I think that to say that Ethervile masterpieces will get from, say, 75 to 100 plus for a 30% plus gain uh, is is probably a safe bet.
1: I, I agree with you. Um, you know, all of these masterpieces that are played as play sets are so much uh, are so appealing just because it puts such a, a longer term demand on the card that doesn't exist for some of the other stuff. So, um, you know, these have a, a pretty solid northward trajectory if we're looking at, at a long enough timeline. Um OK, my second pick for the week is Steely Resolve, which I'm surprised. I don't think I've ever mentioned before, even though I've kind of had my eye on it for a long time now. Steely Resolve is a enchantment from Onslaught that it's a green enchantment. Green, the best color in EDH says uh, choose a creature type. Creatures of that type you control have shroud. So if you're playing any sort of tribal EDH deck, even semi-tribal, this comes down, gives all your dudes shroud. You get to dodge everything. Um very useful, even really, as a card to protect your. If you You can pick your commander, um, and if you've got a couple other guys in the deck with the same creature type, it's almost worth it. Uh, it's like a permanent. Semi, Well, I don't want to say permanent. It is a like a light and greaves type effect uh, without having to actually have the equipment. So uh, very useful for certain commanders. Um, you can currently find copies right around $5, but there are virtually none out there. Supply is very low. There's like five or six near-mint copies on TCG, I think. There's basically none on Channel Fireball or Star City. Uh, there's not much. Um, it's, not, it's in like 700 EDH decks or so. It's not terribly widely played yet but i do think that that profile will only expand with time um i think this is a case um as with some of the other cards i've talked about like martin stromgold which is not that it's not good in edh or useful it's just people aren't necessarily aware of it uh and i do think that that will sort of change over time um and then this could you know as being that it's only from onslaught this could easily end up in a 10 15 20 range given how rare it would be um were a lot of people to be looking for copies so uh it is reprintable you know we could i mean there's no there's no you won't see it in the dual deck uh that's coming up but there's no reason you couldn't see this in the commander later
0: this year um Uh, hmm? maybe the thing is that they've really moved off you putting shroud out there like we haven't seen a shroud card printed in ages the preferred um version of shroud is hexproof, so that you can still affect your own creatures um so i actually think this is a a pretty safe pick to pop um probably a slow gainer um but i would imagine slow and steady because you're right there is basically no inventory i mean we have three vendors on mtg price that have uh prices listed there's a smattering on tcg and a smattering on ebay um but uh, a card that you can mop up for a 100 bucks and then sit on for a while and probably watch it unfold and bloom above 10
1: yeah yeah i I mean i agree it's definitely not a card given that it's in um shroud it's much less likely to show up uh i guess it could um but uh, you're
0: right that's certainly less likely than than some of the other options so um yeah i mean the flip side of that is that there's not a huge demand profile according to edh rec like several hundred decks are running it but that's a big difference between that and you know the thousands that were running fabricate um but uh, anybody that wants this effect, this, this is one of the very few cards that provides it. Um, and if you get a, a strong tribal block forthcoming that makes, you know, tribal EDH, some new tribal EDH decks exciting. Cause the thing with EDH players is it's not that they don't want to play these decks. They, they're always looking for new stuff to try, but they need the right commander, um, and the right support cards to, to set off that chain of events. I mean, um, uh, Atraxa and Brea uh, decks, uh, versions that were run, you know, focusing on counters and and tokens and so forth always existed, but Atraxa was just so perfect for that, that, uh, you know, filling that niche specifically that thousands and thousands of decks were built in the course of the last six months, just chasing after that, that specific opportunity. So every time you get a new swath of legendary creatures that can serve as commanders, you have a new opportunity for a bunch of other cards to pop.
1: Correct, correct. And I think, again, you're, you're correct that it's not huge on EDH Rack right now. But again, I really think that that's because people don't necessarily know. Um, rather than they know and they're like, I don't want to play this card. Because um, it is some of these older cards that are only printed once uh, can be difficult to know about. Basically, you know, if you're a new player coming in, you want to build a deck. Uh, you know, maybe nobody mentioned to you that this is out there you don't really see it on eda track much and uh you just don't end up picking it up because you're just not aware that it exists you know it's easy for us as finance people and like m- deep divers of magic to pick up and to find these types of gems but uh not everyone does that you know the guys who are going and buying packs at the store don't even aren't even like really aware that you can um look up you know do, to do some drilling into the data to find these types of, to find these cards. So they just, are just completely
0: unaware of it. Sure. Fair. So my last pick of the week is ancient stirrings out of uh, rise of the Eldrazi, a common that is currently at $5 um, that has extremely shallow inventory and is played as a constant four of, in both various flavors of Tron decks, um, as well as uh, occasionally. And I think lantern control um, and in Bantel Drazi as well. And that demand pro- profile is strong enough that, um, the, the fact that this card, uh, is a sorcery for one green, uh, is, is part of why it's ubiquitous and modern. Um, but, it looks at the top five cards of your library, and you can reveal a colorless card from among them and put it into your hand. That condition about the colorless cards means that since we just left an artifact block, we are very unlikely to hit another colorless or artifact block in the near future. Um, so its odds of being reprinted in Standard before it gets reprinted in Modern Masters 2019 seem especially low to me, and that tells me that this card could end up over $10.
1: Uh, yeah, I'm right there with you. You know, we were talking about this before the cast and trying to make, both of us were looking at and thinking about it, and we were, we came into it like, I wonder if this is any good. And after a couple minutes of digging, we're like, yeah, this seems really good. Like we could have a pseudo Mishra's bobble on our hand with this, depending on how things play out. So I, yeah, I really like this card right now.
0: Yeah. I mean, there's a, there's a seller on TCG that has 84 copies listed at 549, and that is looking pretty tempting. <laughs> okay. Um, Oh, one last thing I want to
1: point out. We don't do this very often, but uh, if we're looking at cards to sell... Um, I have one for you, and I will be curious to hear if James agrees or disagrees because we didn't get a chance to talk about this ahead of time. But if I have ancestral vision copies right now, I am very inclined to sell them. The new dual deck is might versus Magic as Joyra versus Lovisa Cold Eyes, uh, Blue Red versus Red should be uh, an interesting deck. But Joyra specifically is a card that suspends any spell with four time counters on it. Um, now. You wouldn't use Joyra to suspend Ancestral Visions, but Joyra as a command, as a, as a kind of a pseudo commander for the dual deck is going to be very interested in playing cards that remove time counters, um, which Ancestral Vision always likes. And given that we missed it in Modern Masters 3, um, this could be a really good place to put it, like right at the same time, uh, to really help keep price and in, in uh prices down so i would be getting rid of my ancestral vision copies ahead of uh this might and magic deck because we could see that as i don't know when they i don't know if they said that when they're going to spoil the list but i mean they could do it as early as monday and if it's in there you know these dual decks like msrp for like 30 bucks and i'm pretty sure they're printed to demand for a while
0: yeah uh, i don't want to be holding ancestral vision if it's in there that's bad um but uh you only get a single copy So and here's what's not going to happen. A bunch of LGSs and vendors and so forth are not going to buy up this deck, which if it has vision, will probably have almost nothing else in it. I mean, the two banner uh, 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 legends that are fronting the set are not worth anything um, and nobody cares about them. So if the whole thing is, hey, here's a fun deck that people might pick up and randomly trip over what was a $25, 30 $40 card that is now floating back down um, because it showed up in the deck, um, it could end up being the whole value of the deck. In which case, nobody is going to pop them and flip the card because the, the card will not move much um, on the presence in these decks because they're just not going to get cracked like that. Um, if it's got a bunch of other stuff in it then yeah the price falls for sure because if they stuff60 dollars worth of value in there then this card cannot hold its price um, but it this this play has a, a large yaw because if it goes the other way and it's not in this set then you probably don't see it for a while probably not till modern masters 2018 until somebody gives us a good uh, a good place for it to show up um, uh, where it would be you know a shoe in to be to be uh, reprinted there. Um, in which case this card could hit 50 60 70 dollars if it starts to see a strong play pattern in modern which has not really emerged thus far um, largely because blue control type strategies just have not found their their stride in the format lately with such hyper aggressive linear decks dominating
1: right it's definitely um, it's definitely on the trickier side just because of uh, of the chance that like if it shows up you see the price on visions come down quite a bit but if it doesn't it's like okay well where the heck else are they going to put this thing and it can rise considerably so uh, this is sort of a a tough call almost i think um, or i shouldn't say a tough call but i should say there's a lot of room for as you said a lot of room for movement in the very near future on this card
0: yeah one of the things i would keep my eye on and if the inventory is particularly shallow for vision then this deck may not make a big difference. The the upward pressure on the price from the previously low inventory versus the relatively low number of these that are going to get popped. And then, you know, somebody's going to rationalize, oh, I'll get this, sell the vision, and keep the decks. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, if there's more cards in there, that's that's when I get scared. If it's just vision uh, in there and everything else is basically worthless, then I'm not particularly concerned about holding the card for a while.
1: Which makes sense. It makes sense. Um, okay, so let's move on to our metagame week in review. Uh, we had the Mox Championship, the MTGOs Championship, and uh, GP Brisbane. Now, the Mox Championship, uh, boy, you could not pick a less interesting event <laughs> like in terms of deck lists, there was just There's just nothing here. Um, I mean, I shouldn't say nothing here. There was nothing new here.
0: Yeah, the, the Mox was notable for an extremely strong pool of contenders um and congratulations to Josh Otter Layton for taking the whole thing down um this is a guy that uh was off the pro tour train um and as a long standing member of Channel, F- Channel Fireball was probably getting a little ribbing for that so then he what goes ahead and wins GP Vancouver, which was uh, the modern tournament uh, a couple of weeks ago, and then wins the mocks. And all of a sudden he's up like a hundred thousand plus between his, uh, his winnings, the uh, amount of gravy train it gives him on the pro tour, um, his invitation to worlds later this year and the cash he gets from the mocks itself. Um, that's a guy who has experienced a, a turnabout of sorts. Yeah. No kidding. Um, Anyways, so you look at
1: the MTGO championship, you know, he wins with Mardu Ballista. Places two and three are four colors. Place, second place is copycat. Third and fourth are copycat and Mardu vehicles. Excuse me. So nothing too uh, unique there. Um, really no- nothing that we haven't already seen. Over on the MTGO standard championships, which was the same okay, well- weekend.
0: Oh, hold on, hold on. There, there was a deck that I wanted to make note of uh, at the mocks that almost made top four. And keep in mind they didn't cut to top eight because it was a sh- It was a small player pool. I think it was only 16 competitors. Um, so they had kind of a weird, uh, format set up. Um, but the, uh, there was a teamer, uh, Aetherworks Marvel deck, um, that looked especially strong, um, and is the third or fourth iteration of Marvel decks to show up. uh uh, now this meta is definitely non-representative this is kind of like the world championships in the sense that you are you know planning and uh and playing your deck based on the people that you specifically are coming to the table and what you think they are likely to play as opposed to the much broader meta of you know thousands of thousands thousands of players meeting up at lgs's and at gps so uh it's definitely non-representative but uh, the fact that Aetherworks Marvel is a three or four dollar mythic that continues to show up in decks, and I would be very surprised if it <clears throat> does not win something major at some point this year. Um, once it's got more tools to play with, um, uh, gives me some pause in terms of whether I should be picking up additional copies.
1: Sure, I, I think I think Etherworks Marvel is definitely one of the strongest and cheapest cards in standard right now, especially with potential new nickel bowls on the horizon. So um, you know, if you can get them at two, two fifty, uh, and we get a good nickel bolus, then yeah, I mean we could definitely see that swing back up into the seven, eight, nine dollar range.
0: Alright. So you were you were saying about the MDGO standard championship.
1: Uh yeah, that was really not any different. Um yeah, we see just a slew of copycat Mardu and uh, a little bit of black green. Um, black green's kind of fallen from the format for the moment, uh, but I think that that's probably temporary. Um, you know, you've got your various stripes of Mardu, whether they're like a heavier vehicle build or uh,
0: aggro or um, what have you. But really, it's all the same. The so, same I mean, stuff. So what this tell? I mean, this this leaves them in a very strange position going into this next band list uh, uh, announcement. Um, we have a standard that is relatively static in that it's kind of paper rock scissory around these three decks, copycat, Mardu, uh, agru slash vehicle versions, and green-black decks. Um, very few alternatives have managed to kind of push their way up into top eights. We've seen some Aetherworks Marvel. We've seen some blue-red Dynavolt Tower um, that was also present at the mocks, um and has shown up uh, on camera at numerous other tournaments um but there haven't really been b- new breakout decks in the format is is the 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 kind of solved nature of this format going to be enough for them to ban some more cards
1: i am hoping they do just so that we get something a little more interesting on the horizon here um i mean standard is looking so boring right now right like it's you're playing clearly playing basically one of these three decks maybe like Di- team or Dynaval or um, Aetherworks if you're feeling real spicy but uh, it's pretty settled so they may want to take out like a couple uncommons or something like that um, so that you get to still have good cards and players don't get hammered on the price, uh, but while kind of opening up the format a little bit for things to move around. So like it's kind of it would be really tough to stomach them banning Gideon, for instance. I think people would be real annoyed about that. But you could kick out like Scrap Heap Scrounger or something of that nature, Um you know, kind of knock some of the legs out from some of the top tier decks and give other people a chance to get in while not completely crippling those strategies.
0: Yeah. I don't know. Neither of those cards seem like good picks to me either. I mean, scroungers are rare. That's playable in modern. The, um, the, and, and Gideon has definitely had his time in the sun. So, you know, arguments can be made that, that he is format, uh, defining, uh, but I think it's a, it's going to be an interesting inflection point because I think that one of the things that's going on in Standard now is that the games are actually very skill intensive. This is a a players format where yes, there aren't a bunch of new decks that keep it exciting to watch the game on camera right now, but playing the games is very skill testing. But it's good magic. These are these are interactive decks. They are not super linear. Even the Copycat deck, it has a lot of ebb and flow to it in various games, and there's a lot of play and watching the mocks. Yes, watching the same decks play was fairly boring at the mocks, but the play itself was very, was incredibly interesting. If you're the kind of person that studies lines and likes to understand, um, you know, how to play better magic. So if they make the choice to shake things up, it's a, it's a choice in favor of optics, uh, for the format for, uh, making the format more watchable, um, more interesting to write about. Um, and that's very different than banning for power, right? Which is what we've traditionally been doing.
1: Right. This is if there's a ban here, it's definitely because they want to shake up standard, not because they're worried there's one oppressive deck. Um But I I think that that's not necessarily an unreasonable goal, and which is why I say, well, they could go for the low end instead of the high end. If you're banning for power level, then you go get Gideon because he's just so good. But that makes a lot of people who bought copies feel really bad and like makes them feel less confident and standard, right? Like that's kind of what you want to avoid or what they've avoided in the past. But if you go after a common or uncommon, it's like your Gideons are still good. They're not bad. But now we're kind of shaking things up and moving things around and and giving some other decks a chance to flourish. The thing is, is, this is kind of unexplored territory. We don't know how they're going to use the second ban form yep. phase um so we we have nothing to go on if they do nothing then i think it's pretty safe Then i think we go into this thinking okay this is just a chance to catch um cards that were way too good or decks that were way too good that they missed whereas if they take out something here it's like okay they're gonna be looking to shake up standard frequently and uh how they go about that this time is up to them but i mean really for wizards bottom line like the reason ultimately the reason they're gonna do bannings is they want standard they want more players to play right and whether there's one deck that's crushing or there's two or three decks that are making it stale and boring, both of those lead to players dropping away from the format. Cobblade, you know, you look back at Cobblade and you talked about how it there their great lines and interesting play decisions and like, you know, really, they're there for people who really, truly want to play Magic. And it's like, that's true, but it still pushed a lot of players away from the game when Cobblade was so good. Um, so I think Wizards is definitely interested in Standard being sort of very accessible for people. Um, and there can be those decks that are really good and have these great play lines but if everyone doesn't feel like that there's something there for them they start losing players quickly so here's my two cents i
0: I think that wizards focusing on keeping the format fresh by banning cards is a terrible precedent to set and is likely to scare more people off playing magic in general and certainly standard than it is to attract vis-a-vis more interesting you know week by week uh camera coverage um on the basis that people just it's a really bad feel when you've acquired some cards, or popped them in booster packs, or bought some booster boxes, and you've got your deck together, and you've been playing it for a few months, and you really like it at your local LGS, and then because of how it's playing out um, at the top tiers in terms of the the coverage pattern, um, you you are suddenly told you can't play it, even though your local meta is totally fine. Um, yeah. You know, the same. If you're at a shop where the same 20 guys show up to play FNM every week and everything's just trucking along just just fine, then, you know, getting anything banned is, is a terrible place to be. If you're in a, a shop where 40 people used to show up and now you're down to six, then you're certainly looking for something to upset the apple cart and bring people back in the door. Um, but I think that, you know, it's possible that Magic players just need a shot of Ritalin. I mean, the... It, chess has been using the same board and pieces for hundreds of years. The, <laughs> the, 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 the strategy is, is the game. I mean, you could, the fact that we have formats that rotate at all is one of the things that makes uh, magic unique and wonderful. But getting too hooked on having new decks every week, um, on the basis of making coverage interesting could be a real, uh, divergent trend in, in the game that will not end up in favor of building the brand.
1: Sure. And I think that that's, that's a fair point to make. Um, but you know, I'm, I'm not wizards. I'm only looking at it from my perspective. I look at this and I'm like, man, this does not make me want to go play standard. Maybe the people who are actually sitting there playing the games are happy with where things are going and they're comfortable with this format. Um, and it's not nearly this bad at the local level. So without the numbers of of people showing up at the events there's no way for me to really know that all i can do is say well from over here it looks kind of boring and if your wizards and the tournament numbers are dropping this is an option but we don't really know that at the moment so maybe things maybe player numbers are fine and that you know they're just going to kind of leave it alone
0: i mean one of the things that uh, it leaves me wondering is whether they shouldn't just be devoting more resources to ensuring that as they are constructing standard um, you know, planning standard out through the design and development of new sets that they aren't putting more attention into ensuring that uh, a plethora of decks are uh, viable through the presence of uh, interlocking multi-purpose game pieces. And what I mean by that is cards that are um, flexible and cheap enough and complex enough. And in the presence of appropriate color fixing so that the um, decks that are going to show up are designed um, to be five, six, seven, eight viable decks, all at about the same power level instead of, you know, two or three super powerful decks. And also making sure that things like, you know, Jeskai, Sahili, like Sahili rai combo with Felidar Guardian doesn't just slip through the cracks. I mean, I still think that 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 is essentially unforgivable. If you have a professional team of 10 people that are testing a format, you know, all of the obvious combinations of cards should be tested and having a banner planeswalkers interaction with a card that can blink it in and out of play when it has a copy effect on it just seems nutsy cakes to me.
1: Hey, that was uh that was pretty funny. <laughs> all things considered. <laughs> um, all right. So let's talk about, but yeah, that was pretty ridiculous. Like there's like f- three or four, you know, five card abilities, right. That you really should double check in standard. Um, and whenever the word whenever is definitely a red flag. So how they miss that with Felidar Garvey, I, I, I don't know. I get. I mean, I can understand how you missed it, but I'm sure that there is a lessons learned document floating around wizards right now about how to avoid this in the future because
0: they got lucky that it wasn't just dominating. Um, but, Over at Hm um, Go ahead. I mean, that document's probably been edited multiple times over the years, right? Because this is not the first time we've had a, a problem of this significance. And it's not the first time that a format has devolved to uh, a few key decks. I mean, Mono Blue and Mono Black during uh, uh, Theros block, right? Uh, mono Blue and Mono Black Devotion was probably one of the most boring standard formats in the, of the last five or six years. Um, and it, it, leaves me, it leaves me wondering whether sets just being bigger might be better. Like, having, well, having more cards in the sets?
1: Well, that's that's a tricky path to go down because now it's even harder to catch those interactions. And, you know, a card like Felidar Guardian, True. it's easy to spot, like, oh, now I see why this is... It's easy. It's easier to catch a card like that to make sure that doesn't get out than when you have a 400-card set and it's a less obvious combo. Um, then, I mean, then you have you your second ban point in place. So, you know, you can help curb that type of thing but the, the other then you thing, get into complexity creep
0: yeah the, the other thing about big big set bigger sets is that they're really good for finance and really bad for players right because finding a specific rare or mythic is that much harder
1: right right it is certainly not enjoyable they have to be able to dig through all that and i guess the standard the format can probably change pretty dramatically
0: so i find it i find it interesting that one of the things we haven't experimented with lately is set size
1: yeah that's true we haven't they've all been pretty pretty standard size lately you know you saw that back in like lower wind time spiral um they were kind of tweaking it back then but it's been fairly static i think or return to Ravnica is probably the last time it was a little different right because you had like large well that was large large small yeah and the stand the standard was large small small now they're like what large medium large medium basically
0: yeah exactly um, alright. So the only other, uh, event I wanted to cover was GP Brisbane, um, which was the modern tournament with a thousand players at it, uh, last weekend, which was won by Oliver Ox on Lantern Control. Uh, don't count that deck out. Uh, it was a laughing stock that won things and now it's winning things again. Um, and it's always been there in the background. The thing about this deck is that any specs related to it, uh, rely on there being enough, uh, players that are smart enough to play the deck well um and mm-hmm. when you're choosing between investing in burn and investing in lantern control you're typically going going to want to err on the side of the deck that more people can comfortably pick up um, gateway uh, decks are definitely going to have stronger demand profiles than some of these very technical uh, kind of uh, expert level decks um there was two dredge uh Decks in the top three, a Living End deck, an Abzan mid-range deck, uh, Affinity, Black Green Tron, and Nahiri Control. Um, out of these, I wanted to highlight the Black Green Tron, because I think it's interesting that we're still seeing various variations uh, of this. And I said earlier that the Black Green was running less than four copies of Karn, and I'm totally wrong. It was running the full four copies.
1: <laughs> I uh, I didn't want to argue with you. <laughs> um yeah, Lantern Control is interesting. Definitely continuing to put pressure on Mox Opal. So, you know, when we talk about that as being a, being a major part of the format, you can see it there as well. Uh, the return of Dredge is kind of surprising. It had kind of fallen off the the radar a little bit in the last couple of weeks, um, after they got rid of, uh, what they get rid of? Golgari Grave Troll and, cataxian probe um we saw in fact in dredge fall back but lishi chan who's a, a modern modern expert brought it back um let's see yeah he just replaced it for Vulgari thug so apparently it's still good enough which isn't too surprising i think um the the, the loss of the two dredges isn't a big deal living end in the top is uh, in the top eight i like to see that um i think i talked about living end a couple weeks ago wasn't it my pick of the week a couple weeks ago i feel like living end was um this is a card that used to be 15 plus dollars uh and now it's down to like seven and eight the deck is still completely fine um and the new expertises give you a way to cast living ends that are in hand the one that took uh fourth third fourth at brisbane actually played one of the Kari Zebs main deck um so we could you
0: could end up playing more I'm not sure but uh yeah, yeah. so so a good look at modern right now I think yeah, that's that's interesting, the Kerry Zevs. Um uh, in the black green Tron list, um, despite getting the Karn number wrong, uh, I was correct that they were spreading out the threats. They had two Ugin the Spirit Dragon, two Ulamog the Ceaseless Hunger, two Worldbreaker, and two Wormcoil Engine. That's actually a lot of uh, a fairly dense uh threat portfolio for a Tron deck. It is. It
1: is. They've they've uh spread out a little bit, I think, too, um, diversified
0: as well. Yeah, and uh, this is this is four ancient Stirrings, four collective brutality. Um, collective brutality f- foils in my portfolio looking uh, especially good since they're likely safe for years um and are i, I think we'll end up a uh, strong gain strong gainers right yeah if you'd gotten in on those at the floor they were real good
1: um okay so do you want to move on to our topic of the week or do you have more you want to say about these events
0: mm, just worth pointing out that we had nahiri control uh, in the top eight and it was running three chandra torch of defiance um mm. I've been starting to put my eye on foils of that card because a foil mythic planeswalker that's played as a as a three or four of in modern uh definitely has my attention.
1: That is interesting. You know, um this, somebody ran some numbers on Reddit this past week to try and figure out what the masterpiece distribution was. And there are several uh assumptions that are made during that. Um so, so you know, it's it's a it's a ballpark figure basically. Uh but it looked like there was about, I think he said about six to 10,000, maybe 10,000 of each, of each individual masterpiece in print. Um, so, you know, there's about 10,000 masterpiece Aether Vials, for instance, but also foil mythics end up at roughly the same distribution. So there are only about 10,000 foil Chandra Torch of Defiance. Or maybe it was 6,000, which sounds like a lot. Uh, but I mean, you know, there's a lot of people that play magic.
0: Well, and a lot of that stuff gets picked up at Walmart or Target, opened by some kid, lost, or gets vacuumed up into the garbage by his mom. Like, the attrition is real. Um, the, The people that actually, like, manage and take care of their collections and pay attention and buy and sell cards are a relatively small sliver of the overall pie, if you believe that there's 20 million players, but only a few million of them are actually showing up at competitive events.
1: Right. Yeah. You know, I don't know. You got to wonder how many get, um, picked up by my, you know, moms at target. Um, but it's, it's more than zero. You know, I, t- it's hard to know what percentage of packs get sold there as opposed to like at a card store. We don't know that we know that Hasbro sold like 117 million packs or something like that. Um, I think in 2016.
0: Well, I mean, we know the attrition ratio has to be something like 95% of all inventory draining out of the market. Because if you look at any given card, um, that it, you know, in theory, if you're supposed to have thousands of these foil mythics, there aren't even close to thousands listed on TCG Player, which is one of the most, you know, between TCG and eBay and you know the vendors on MTG Price and a few other places, you know, that's the market. And in terms of being able to purchase it online, and if you accumulate all of the foil Chandra's across all of those platforms, you might have 100 to 150. So where did the other 90 to 95% of them go?
1: Yeah, I mean, I guess they're probably in people's hands. Like there, there's there's definitely scattered copies. And I guess the question is, are they with Magic players who are just hanging on to them and they're going to show up in somebody's collection in weeks, months, or years? Or are they with nine-year-old Timmy um, and going to collect dust for the next decade?
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I think that the only different, you know, difference between Timmy and, you know, random guy at the LGS who has one in a binder is that the guy at the LGS might sell it, uh, whereas the the rest of the attrition, whether it's Timmy or Dave, who's thirty nine years old and lives with his mom, mm-hmm. the all of those cards are stuck in binders from inertia, like either they're lost, damaged, whatever. Or they're just sitting around in a binder. But from the perspective of MTG Finance, it's all the same because they're not part of the market. That, that if the person's odds of selling is zero, um, then that card doesn't exist. And it, I'm happy to see it sit in that guy's binder forever um, as it helps deplete inventory for, for our purposes.
1: Yeah, I, I mean, I agree. The only difference is basically how likely is the nine-year-old versus the local player to actually sell that card. You know, if the kid is at basically 0% and the guy with it in his binder is at 3%, um, there, there's not a major difference there. I, I, I agree for sure. Uh, they they function similarly.
0: So also of note in these Nahiri Control, uh, you know, Blood Moon decks is that they run four Blood Moon, four Chalice of the Void, uh, and four Nahiri the Harbinger. All cards that are... Uh, that. Uh, well, Chalice and Blood Moon are kind of ubiquitous in the format, and Nahiri is very specific to this deck. And so, in Nahiri's future, um, if you're holding any foils of that card, um, I would be worried about what's going to happen with Simeon Spirit Guide, so it's, because it's not clear that this deck survives without SSG to be able to get out early Blood Moons and Chalices.
1: Yeah, I, Simeon Spirit Guide has been on the extremely short list of Bannable for a long time now. Uh, and I think every time the ban list announcement comes and goes and it's not on there, there's a contingent, you know, a good number of people that are like, really? Did you not, did you not see what this does? Um, so yeah, that is a card that I actually sold all of my copies of uh, a while ago. Cause I'm like, no, I don't really want, this is like a $7 comment. I'm not really interested in getting steamrolled by this. Um, yeah it'll be interesting this the format will really change if spirit guide gets banned because like blood moon suddenly drops significantly in value because you can't get it out on turn one or two uh gorio's decks suffer significantly um there's a lot of basically unfair decks that really take a beating when something spirit guide goes and it'll be it'll be like a kind of a subtle effect because it's not like you suddenly just remove one deck from the format entirely but it really weakens a lot of combo strategies
0: yeah, and I suspect that <clears throat> uh, lowering the value of Blood Moon in the format increases the value of control because they can more reliably execute on their game plan of um, starting to steamroll you on value over the long haul by having yeah. you know, r- being able to reliably respond to threats with answers with the right mana.
1: Yep, yep. Um, okay. Okay. So let's jump into our topic of the week. Um, it was announced this week that Channel Fireball will be the exclusive tournament organizer for all Grand Prix in 2018. Um, as we all know, that whenever a company has a monopoly, that is always good for the consumers. <laughs> that was sarcastic. Uh, I'm curious how this is going to play out. Um, apparently, I've already heard that Wizards manages independent has in there are wizards contractors who determine feature matches at grand prix so the concern about only channel fireball players being at the feature match tables from now on in gps is um is diminished but uh i do not know james what was your take when you read about this well,
0: There's a couple things i saw people saying oh it's not going to matter that this is a monopoly because wizards has a monopoly on magic and that works out fine um most mm. people don't know what monopolies are uh wizards does not have a monopoly on on magic they own magic they are the the sole provider but there are many other companies making other tcgs and video games and board games and all sorts of things that compete for nerd hobby dollars um and so yes they are the exclusive provider of one product but they compete uh they have plenty of competition and the the primary concern When you're assessing whether a monopoly is going to be a problem is the lack of competition allowing the monopolist to to set the price. Um, and so one of the main issues here from a, you know, finance perspective, if you're coming at it from the angle of saving money on magic as opposed to making money on magic is whether or not this will result in a unified high price point to attend a GP. So, um, for instance, the organizers here in Toronto the last year or two, including the upcoming GP in Toronto in a couple months, uh, it, uh have been the guys at Face to Face Games Toronto. Um, they did an amazing job last year. That event was spewing with value tons of MTG finance opportunities, um, as well as just really good prices on, on various, uh, um, uh, tournaments, side tournaments in the, in the main tournament. Um, uh, I think it was in this like $60 range and you got a bunch of packs uh, and got to play standard and you got the play and the, and the GP promo foil. Um, so very solid value, but there's been other reports of, you know, 80, 90, hundred dollar tournaments where, um, what you were getting for your dollar was not especially good, and so the question here with Channel Fireball is whether they are going to uh, end up being you know middle of the road ba- versus expectations, or whether their ability to just kind of set the price is going to result in you know hundred dollar plus GPS from from now till eternity.
1: Well, w- Helen, and they specifically cited the. A gp entry fee in the announcement um or I, I think they did or if it wasn't they acknowledged it someplace else so they know that the wild gp entry costs are part of this and i, I believe their goal is to get that under control because essentially they couldn't do anything about tos charging like 150 dollars or whatever nonsense it has been for gp entry fees so it's possible they struck a deal with channel channel fireball and said look you have to lock in Limited GPs at, you know, 60 and constructed GPs at 50 or something. You have to guarantee us that entry fee at every single Grand Prix so that it's not different every time. It's not a surprise and players aren't getting angry at us because TOs are just kind of doing whatever they want. Will that happen? I don't know. We don't know yet, but I, I suspect given that that has been tacitly acknowledged that, um, managing entry fees is part of it because Wizards wants as many people to show up to these things as possible, right? Like, you know, they'd much rather have a lot more players coming. If you could have a thousand players at a hundred bucks a piece versus um, two thousand players at 50 bucks a piece. Wizards really wants the two thousand players because that's that many more cards that have to get bought. Um, so they have a much greater, vest- a very large vested interest in a very large player base playing um, at smaller entry fees.
0: One of the things that's interesting here is how much deeper the CFB tentacles on MTG finance and, and vendor participation get, right? Because they get to now decide which vendors attend which events. Um, and generally speaking, you know, most TOs, um, you know, it's not like CFB hasn't already been running GPs and um, both them and, you know, SCG, um, have, uh, a long history of doing so and, and have run some very fantastic events. I mean, CFB was, uh, is and, and was, um, uh, behind the, Uh, fantastically popular uh, Vegas GPs for modern masters uh, and the forthcoming super event in Vegas this year. Um, And those were run uh, extremely well, right? Everybody had an amazing time. Those are some of the landmark uh, tournament uh, events in the history of magic. Um, So we have every reason to believe that, you know, them running the events will be done well um, and that there are economies of scale and scope to be realized when, you're handling all of the events. I mean, one of the things that I've been wondering about is, you know, whether they are going to subcontract a lot of the operational stuff, like, um, uh, venue setup management, um, judge sourcing and so forth to people that were previously running events in their various geographic zones. Um, and then just, you know, provide a harmonized coverage apparatus that kind of travels around to the various GPs and gets set up so that, you know, Louise and and Marshall can comment on the event consistently with, um, uh, you know, advanced technology, week after week after week after week, or month after month, um, and all of that sounds good. Um, the I, I have a couple of questions about what's going to happen to judge compensation. Um, I'm not a judge, so it's not really you know core to my interests, but I, I'm curious about whether this will be better or worse for judges moving forward. Um, one of the other things, though, is that In being able to pick all of the vendors and having presence at a lot of events, CFB has that much more, um, power over buy lists and controlling inventory about getting access to, um, to, uh, you know, the, the finance scene for magic, the secondary market specifically, um, pretty much everywhere now. Um, And not just in North America. I mean, it would not have surprised me that they were being given the license for all of North America. It does surprise me a little that it's global, um, that they're running events all over the world. Um, You know, certainly makes you wonder what the impact of that will be on the secondary market, if anything. Sure, sure. Yeah, I mean, that is that is a lot. Channel Fireball's presence
1: is growing, suddenly growing very considerably in the scope of what we're interested in and in their presence. So, um, yeah, bound to have some impact uh, across the board. It'll just be a matter of time to see kind of how it plays out. Cause I don't think it's going to be immediate. It'll take some time.
0: Well, if I, had to, if I had, had to choose between CFB and SEG, Star City Games, um, before this announcement as to what was kind of the dominant vendor in North America or in the, in the world even, I would have said it was SEG. Now I'm not so sure. I mean, having control of all, all of the GPs is, is big game um, and uh, expands the scope of their organization significantly. Um, I used to think of, a, think of them as kind of the, the West Coast operator, um, but now they're truly global. So uh, it'd be very interesting to see how this all plays out. And there was an interesting statement made by uh, the head of SCG, actually, on their site, um, saying that they had they were one of the parties that was asked to bid on this because it wasn't just handed to CFB on a silver platter. There was a bidding process. Um, and they had apparently withdrawn because it, the, the requirements for uh, fulfilling this contract didn't match what they wanted to do with the SCG tour. Um, Mm -hmm. so it, it sounded like it was going to interfere in some way. And so, uh, the CEO over at SCG said that they were going, they were looking to upgrade and expand the SCG tour, um, to be, you know, more competitive, I suppose, um, versus the GP circuit almost as, you know, like they're running side by side as opposed to being kind of, I think what people thought of as two different animals um, you know, more head to head. So it'd be interesting to see how all of that unfolds and whether that competition between the two circuits um leads to a better experience and better pricing for everybody.
1: Sure. Um I mean you're you're completely right by the way Star City has always been the sort of the larger, more um I guess well known store. I mean Channel Fairwall is second, but Star City was pretty firmly the premier magic store uh and yeah this really switches it now channel fireball is a, an international operator um it's going to give them a, a lot more region access than they had before so it'll be interesting to see uh to see how kind of how this plays out and i'm not clear what the impact on you and i is when we start talking about well what if it's channel fireball now instead of instead of star city how much does that matter to all of us uh you know, in terms of like buying your cards, Channel Fireball prices have always been a little bit better, I think, than Star City for the most part. But it's, you know, we won't really know until we get there, I think.
0: Well, I mean, one of the options of a monopoly would be to say we're going to be the only buyer and seller on the floor. Um, but that's never going to happen because one of the biggest draws to going to these big events is that there are, you know, 5, 10, 15 vendors on the floor um, That provide, you know, a wealth of opportunity to go browse through showcases and track down the rare thing you're after or have better opportunities to uh, sell cards or, uh, or trade. And so um, it's in nobody's interest. And I'm sure it was part of the contract to say that that wasn't going to happen. Um, right. You're actually going to reduce the amount of extra money you would make from being the sole vendor would be countered by the the fall off in attendance. And there would be a strong motivation for the SCG tour to expand even further and and add back the vendors that you subtracted, since that would be a, the preferable state for most players. Right. So I don't think that's really a fear. I think it's uh, it's likely to play out in more subtle ways uh, over time. Um, some of which will be imperceptible to us because we won't have the you know operational vision on what's going on in the in, in behind the scenes. Um, but you know the, the, this is this is going to be a, a very interesting uh, uh, year to, to play out. And keep in mind that this doesn't start in 2017. this is starting in 2018. All of the GPS that are already scheduled for this year are going to be run as they were announced. this is the the next season um, as it were, that this will start to, uh, be actualized. Mm -hmm. Yep. So, so interesting changes. Um, it's going to take some time for all that
1: to play out. Uh, is there anything else you wanted to touch on this week, James? I think we're good brother.
0: Okay. Uh, so where can our loyal listeners find you? You guys can find me on Twitter at MTG Critic as well as via my weekly articles on MTGPrice.com. Um, this week, I just posted the first of a three part series on making money in modern uh, in 2017. So you might want to check that out. Okay. Sounds interesting.
1: Uh, and again, my name Travis Allen. I'm on Twitter, Wizard WizardBumpin, B U M P I N. I write every Monday on MTG Price. Uh, I do the webcast Cartel Aristocrats. And if you like playing magic, check
0: out scry.land. Find magic in your area. I would also like to remind our listeners to check out the mtgprice.com Trader service for just $4.99 a month or $49.99 per year. You can get early access to this podcast, fantastic articles by the best MTG finance minds in the biz, and a sweet set of online collection management and buy list tools that will drive better returns and save you money playing Magic the Gathering.
1: All right. Well, that brings us to the end of episode uh, 57. Um. So thanks for joining me, James. I had a good time and I'll
0: see you next week. Thanks, Travis. And we'll see you guys next week on another episode of MTG Fast Finance.